0: It's a classic. It sure is. We're uh, hitting uh, some of the big ones over the last few weeks, and uh, sure enough, trouble with tribbles—that is a big episode. Well, welcome to the brothers' trek. About my name is Matt, and uh, as always, joining me from Houston is my brother Ken. So say hello, Ken.
1: Hailing frequencies are open.
0: They sure are. Well, like I said, Troubles with Tribbles is the name of the game this week. It's going to be exciting to talk about. I've got lots of notes on the subject because, as Ken has said, this is a classic. This is one of the ones that uh, people always point to as their favorites, including uh, Joseph Pevney, who's, uh, you know, one of the main directors on Star Trek. And uh, he always points to this one as... uh, being a good time on the set, even though uh, he kept having to uh, maintain discipline amongst uh, the cast members who were always cracking each other up. Uh, But he really likes this episode. He thinks that this is the perfect example of not only um, comedy being able to be used uh, perfectly in Star Trek, but also showing that comedy is better when your characters are much more in the zone of it. You know, when you play the the straighter, you play the characters in the comedy, the better the comedy reads.
1: Right. This also (laughs) has a feature we talked about a lot in the first series, the first season in which uh, we made the observation that a lot of these episodes were something else and star Trek. And this Mm -hmm. of course is a, it's a police procedural and it's star Trek. So it's Star Trek in the sense that we're going to confront the Klingons on a space station. But it's a police procedural because somebody's up to no good and our detectives have to solve the crime. And that makes some of the best Star Trek. Because when it's just Star Trek, it's certainly enjoyable for me. I, I enjoy it watching Star Trek people do Star Trek things. But you get really good television when you make it on top of that. Some kind of traditional story, you know, something we recognize. It's a police procedural. It's a action adventure. It is a love story. You know, it, and then you've got on top of that these kind of Star Trek themes and Star Trek situations. I wrote a, a, a fan fiction once that was a police procedural. Oh, really? It takes place. I did know that. I did. I should look it up and send it to you. Uh, so it takes place in the post- you know, kind of post-movie era, after Nemesis and so forth, right? Okay. And, you know, the, the whole question is, you know, there are reforms going on in, in Romulus, but are these real reforms or are they just for show? Are they going to take root or are they going to be cast aside by, you know, the next Praetor or whatever? And uh, you have this situation where where somebody's murdered and the Romulan detective, or the, you know, Romulan intelligence officer, and the uh, Starfleet security officer um, are working together, and in this small way, building a little trust, because they're both professional policemen in a sense, right? I mean, they're not, neither one of them is properly a policeman, but within each of their spheres, a little police work is part of what they do. So you have this Romulan intelligence officer, and and this Federation security officer who are solving this crime and and respecting one another's professionalism and their ability to, to see clues and uh, you know put things together. And you know, by the end of it, you're left with and you know, so at the same time I, I never quite make the Romulan entirely believable, right? You're supposed to think are they hiding yeah. something, is there you know, because it wouldn't be a Romulan if you didn't think there's a little bit of something else going on. But at the end they solve the crime. And, you know, the, the, and you're like, well, it, I think we built a little bit of trust today <laughs> between, <laughs> between the Romulans.
0: And well, the that's Federation. nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny, so talking back uh, about the Trouble of Tribbles is that we, the first part of the show, you start to feel like the, uh, the Tribbles are a B story. Right? right. You feel like the main story is like uh, whatever's going on between the Klingons and the Federation and this, you know, crazy wheat that they uh, made up and that the, the Tribbles is just like this annoying B story until all of a sudden what happens in the B story totally comes on and affects everything that's happening in the A story. Right. So much so that, you know, the mystery is then solved by the the Tribbles, you know, at the end with the help of Captain Kirk, of course. In that sense, it's a
1: classic Seinfeld episode.
0: <laughs> right? Almost. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So uh, this episode, again, much like last week's—not much like, exactly like last week's—was uh, written by David he, uh This is the first one that he actually sold to the show, but uh, they ended up producing the other one first. He uh, basically gave, like, three treatments to Gene Kuhn to read— uh, one of them was called The Protracted Man. The other one was called Bandy. And then the third one, uh, he had originally pitched to Coon, but he had turned him down, called The Fuzzies. David Rold says of this, any other writer would have said, oh, well, that's a dead end. I'm not going to write it as an outline. But I said, no, I will write it up as an outline and I'll show him how it can be done. So uh, that's exactly what he did. The basic plot in this outline's a little bit different It's a lot more about the fuzzies than it is about what else is going on. In fact, basically the idea is that uh, they stop off at this trade post, which is similar, and they pick up this wheat that they are then transporting to another uh, planet. But Yeoman Rand at this point picks up the fuzzy, brings it on board. The fuzzies multiply. The fuzzies eat the grain. That's how the story ends. It basically ends like that. There's no other story. So it was with a lot of, like, Coon prodding at Gerald, like, well, couldn't we make this – two planets are fighting over this grain. So that's when we start to develop that idea, and it isn't until that we get to the third treatment that then Gerald says, well, uh, I just saw the enemy – not the enemy within – so we get a
1: mention of the Organian Peace Treaty, which, I, you know, is one of the last times we saw the
0: Klingons. Exactly. Also a reference to uh, season one. Mm-hmm. Errand of Mercy. That was the episode I was trying to think of. So he had just seen the Klingons in that one. So he was like, uh, hey, what if I use the Klingons? Wouldn't that be great? And of course, Kuhn, who had, you know created the klingons was all for it he's like yeah let's bring the klingons back that'll be really exciting so that was how the klingons came to be a part of this episode the uh, second draft of the or the second draft of the treatment was given to dc fontana dc fontana loved it she think that we need to uh, uh get this one i think it needs a little bit of work but it'll be fun it also play like shore leave, you know which was so well received so, of course, the DeForest Research Company that we've talked about before that, that looks in to make sure that we're talking about things that are actually uh, real or not real goes to Kuhn and says, well, you know, that uh, the the Chiticali is actually a, a real thing. It was a true hybrid developed in uh, Canada so that it could be used there to uh, grow more wheat. Canada? So, uh, perhaps you mean Siberia. <laughs> right. My bad. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to take anything away from the Russians. Uh so of course then that's why they made it the Quadro Tr- Trick They were like, well, you know, if the Tritkali already exists, by the time we get into, you know, uh Star Trek's time, the 24th century, well, hey, then we'll have Quadro Triticali. Of course. This third draft of the uh the thing obviously looks a little bit more this outline looks a lot more like what the show ends up being you know we get to a local bar and grill because it wasn't sure whether or not it was going to be a space shit, a space station yet or a, a planet they hadn't decided yet uh it is also here where uh, scotty throws the first punch you know uh when the klingons insult the enterprise by calling it a sagging old rust buffet uh garbage scowl <laughs> yes exactly the scene afterwards, where Kirk disciplines the men, then brings Scotty in, is uh, also in this in this thing, but it's not fully realized. Again, it was a coon note where he was like, uh, "Well, wouldn't it be funny? We get these two guys in the in the scene together, and it's of course the insulting of the Enterprise that makes Scotty act, and not Kirk being insulted. No, no, we can let Kirk take the insult. It's gonna be fine." It was also Fontana, who too, and this will be something we talk about once we actually get into the recap of the episode. It was uh, D.C. Fontana who came up with the idea for Kirk not enjoying this particular role, which she called a policeman. You know, he doesn't care about watching over a pile of wheat, it seems, uh, almost below him. Uh, She's also the one who came up with the idea of making the... uh, the fuzzies' a menace to the ship, you know, by just taking over and ending up in the ventilation system. She's also the one too, who came up with the idea of the, uh, the, the fuzzies falling down on top of Kirk. It
1: does seem, end, though, so. that if what this guy wants is a compliment to security guards, and he's such a powerful dude, he should have just requisitioned his compliment to security guards. You know, and they show up on a shuttle or they get dropped off and some other starship's heading from here to there. Mm-hmm. And, like, he's got his guys and they have nowhere else to go. They're not, like, distracted. They're like, this is what we're here for. And it, it does seem odd to say, I'm going to call, you know, a heavy cruiser <laughs> to come and guard this
0: week. <laughs> right, exactly. There should have been plenty of other people that could have gotten involved to uh, do it. So, finally, he does a fourth outline uh, again for free because you know how Star Trek works. But he's just excited to get to be a part of the show. Gerald is finally uh, he gets he they buy decide they're going to buy the story and develop it into a script. They pay him six hundred and fifty dollars for his script. And uh, this ta- at this point too they send it to NBC. NBC writes back, excellent story. The writer <laughs> has shown great imagination and the grasp of our series. The touches of humor with the underlying and very evident threat of jeopardy jeopardy is superbly played against one another if this screenplay is successful as the story outline this should be one of the most visually exciting and provocative of star trek's episode ever put on film <laughs> well at least dan Robinson isn't overselling it yeah <laughs> uh, gerald also says that uh coon at this point is like uh, well we're going to assign a, a writer to this but we're not going to do that for two weeks. So uh, if you can get us a first draft of the script in two weeks, then uh, we might go ahead and use yours. Of course, it took on average, uh, the average writer to write a script in two weeks. So he was giving him the perfect amount of time without actually giving him the, you know, the script to do. Uh, And he didn't feel like that was unfair either. He goes on to say it was necessary. It would have been unfair if he had tried to do it To me a second time because if he was buying the second script for me, then he meant, and he meant that I knew I could deliver a finished product. uh, He had me do it on spec. But at this point, I'm unproven, so it's okay if they try and make me do it, but only once. (laughs) So uh, he delivers the script in just three days, and it was 61 pages long, uh, which is a good length for a first draft, but obviously stuff had to be cut. So Robert Justman, who we uh, know and love from uh, from his many memos, you know, likes the script. But uh, Gerald says of it, uh, says of Justman, he's like, he's presented as one of the friendliest demeanors on the lot. But don't let these good looks fool you. Beneath that warm, fuzzy exterior, there lurked the heart of a miser. You would have thought you were uh, he was spending his own money, and vicious. Okay, he wasn't vicious, not really But anyone who would send a six-page Single-spaced, one-thousand-word To the page memo to a new writer Listing glaring details in His first rough draft as a script Is the kind of man who would sacrifice Naked Girl Scouts, cookie packages Still clutched in their hands before a giant Statue of Maman But he still liked uh, Yeah <laughs> At this point, too, we had the climax of the of the script mostly turning out the way it does now, except uh, Kuhn didn't like the way that it was figured out. Because what they originally had was Cyrano Jones going, oh, I think I know that guy, but I thought he was a Klingon, the guy he looks at. And the, oh, he's the Klingon! And then that's how they figure it out. So, uh Kuhn was like, we need to come up with something different, something a little bit, you know, more interesting that'll really help sell that climax. So then again, it was David Gerold who's like, at the last minute, I realized I know what this script needs. It needs a connection between the Klingons and the Tribbles. So uh, once he made that connection in his head, he was like, I can't even believe I I had any other plan in mind. So it's at this point, too, that the DeForest research uh, notifies Kuhn that... uh, this book, or that this story, sounds a lot like another story written by um, written by Robert Heinlein, and it was a novel called Martian Flat Cats where there's obviously a lot of cats that's happening and blah, blah, blah. So Roddenberry really quick, you know, runs to Heinlein and is like, hey, just so you know, we got this new writer on here and he wrote the story and it sounds like your story. I just wanted you to know we didn't make it, you know, we weren't copying your story. Everything's going to be cool. All right, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. And uh, Heinlein, uh, of course, says, uh, well, this was based on a 1913 <laughs> short story about pigs back in the day. So, if anybody, we got to pay that guy. So anyway, Heinlein <laughs> was cool with it, and, uh, and everything was fine. Uh, also, too,
1: he's actually based on the, on the farm report back in, when he was a kid. <laughs> oh, those those right. weevils got into that cotton again.
0: <laughs> they just keep multiplying. <laughs> so uh, his title for this uh, for his for this version of the script draft one was you think you got tribbles (laughs) coon of course hated it and asked uh, gerald to change the name and he says why are we calling these creatures tribbles if you don't take advantage of at least of, of one good pun so of course obviously he ends up uh putting the uh the good pun at the end of the uh episode uh so gerald of course again being super complimentary uh about Gene Kuhn and the writing of this episode, always felt that Kuhn deserved a co-writing because of all of the, you know... Assistance? Yes, thank you, that he gave them on the uh, episode. He even says, uh, Gene Kuhn never told me once what to do. Instead, he kept telling me what I couldn't do. I thought that's that's really good. That's like being a leader, you know, as being like, I'm not necessarily going to lead your hand and show you how to do everything, but... Don't do that. That's really dumb. <laughs> Gerald also says that uh, we didn't set out uh, for this episode to be a comedy. As the script through went through a number of many drafts, uh, we started putting putting in more and more of the jokes. Everybody kept saying, "Let's have more fun. Let's have more fun." Gene Roddenberry, however, wasn't around when the script was being developed, and of course, uh, Roddenberry never liked it when Kuhn would bring the lighter side of Star Trek. Into Trek, right? He didn't like the humor. Gerald has this to say about Roddenberry, which I liked. Roddenberry was out of town, which I think was one of the reasons Tribbles turned out so good. He's a meddler. He couldn't let a script just go across his death without changing it a little bit. Now, a lot of what he did was good, but he is not what you would call a funny guy. He's not a man. He's not, a man with a, he's not a man with a sense of humor. Uh, if he would have been there, then Tribbles would not have been as funny. There would have been a lot more heavy seriousness to it. And then the point of the old episode would be, I mean, of that being charming and funny, Ryan Berry would have never let such a lightweight, charming, fluffy, or funny episode happen.
1: Although it's good in a long series to have some funny episodes. Especially when they're not silly. So our two episodes with Mud, I feel, border on a little too much silliness. Uh-huh. I don't think I don't think they're bad. I don't think they're too silly. But I, I I certainly don't want to go any sillier than the Mud episodes. But this one I think is is fun. It's got a much better balance between the like the the NBC guy says, between the threat and the humor. You know, a lot of the humor in this episode is the way Kirk is dismissive of of the uh, commissioner or whatever he is, right? Yeah. I've never thought a Federation official to be, uh, you know, an idiot
0: until now. <laughs> I know, right? It's basically what he says. Yeah. <laughs> you can have two men and that's it. <laughs> well, you know, too, I think that what – this is what I was going to say earlier – was that uh, Star, Star Trek Two. Has the ability to sort of be all those different things, right? I mean, we can even see that from the movies. You know, you look at Star Trek One. You know, it's a very serious Gene Roddenberry. You know, Star Trek. We get into Star Trek Two. We have high adventure. It's a little bit sillier. You know, again, we go back to Three. Three's a little more heavy. There's a lot going on. Kirk's son dies. All of these things. By the way, spoiler alert. Uh, you know, but then we get Four, and Four is all like. <laughs> double dumbass on you, you know, and then we get five and they're singing campfire, you know, they're singing campfire tunes. And then we get six, which is just, you know, this, you know, again, I, I would make an argument for the best of the series of a, of a thing that works on so many different levels, has enough comedy, has enough adventure, but is also telling a story that, you know, means something, has a, has a moral and a point. It's, I think it's part, you know, one of the the Star Trek at its finest, really. Yep. And so I, I so yeah, so I think coon, coon, I think Roddenberry making it so serious all the time and playing everything, and not letting it be lighter or not is is probably something that as we go on, we will be commenting more and more on. I'm sure. And not only that, but it's also because we just had IMUD, like you said, then we're going into this one, which is also a very silly episode. These funny episodes, despite how well they were received and how well the cast likes them and how well the audience likes them, does not make Roddenberry happy. And so <clears throat> something's coming to a head here in the near future between Kuhn and Roddenberry about what Star Trek really is. Even though, as we've learned already, that Kuhn has had built developed so much of the history of, you know, the Federation and Starfleet and all of these names that we have that are all due to Kuhn, they still don't see eye to eye on things.
1: you know, a prison like that can be productive, right? You know, mm-hmm. if they compete with each other to, you know, make good Star Trek, um, it can be bad, of course, when it just becomes poisonous and they fight and it's petty and.
0: Um, you know, single-mindedness doesn't help anything, right? You got to be open to other ideas. If they could have worked out a system where Ron Berry writes a thing and then Kuhn, you know, does the final polish on it and, you know, it becomes this wonderful mashup of the two people working together, then it becomes awesome. You know what I think? Twin Peaks is the perfect example of this, right? You got, what's the other guy's name? That's not David Lynch. Mark... Mark Frost. Ah, ah thank you. Dave, yes, David Frost. I was thinking Nixon and Frost or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Right, I know, I'm insane. Um, so yeah, so that's the perfect example. So we have David Lynch who brings in the weird the the thing and then we've got enough of Mark Frost being like, but we gotta make it this soap opera-y kind of weekly thing. What are, What's gonna make people... Come back right so you have the perfect Amount of David Lynch and the perfect amount of Mark Frost and you have those first seven Episodes which work out perfectly For each other
1: the gum you like will Come back into style
0: <laughs> Exactly <laughs> And then um, And then you know You get season two Which is a little more Mark Frost And a little less David Lynch until you get To the end of season You know season two Then not that I've got to watch a lot of it, but the the newest series that just came out, season three, you've got almost a little bit too much David Lynch again, and not enough of Mark Frost. So there's not that perfect balance that really, you know, is what made those first seven episodes sparkle so much. I think. But anyway, that's on the horizon. That's coming for us. It's going to be a sad time. So obviously, Kuhn wanted to bring back uh, John Calicos here to play Core from Errand of Mercy, but unfortunately. Calicos wasn't available. He just thought it would be cool if we kept bringing back the same Klingon, the same Klingon from them, to, you know, bash heads against each other. He thought oh, that was good. Klingon. Yes. Oh, I know. Yes. How many times <laughs> did they say Klingon in this episode? It's ridiculous. I even just started writing it in my notes. I'm like, nope, not Klingon. Klingons. So instead, what they do to bring back a. uh bring back somebody who would have a little bit of chemistry with William Shatner as a former villain. We bring back William Campbell, who uh, formerly played Trelane in The Squire of Gothos. They bring him in. They're like, all right, we want you to play this Klingon. What's your take on Koloth? And uh, William Campbell says, well, let me put it this way. I would never let anyone else hurt Kirk because I've got to hurt him. In fact, I'll never kill him because I want to make his suffering last long. And they said, good, that's exactly what we want. So uh, they bring him <laughs> in to play Captain Koloth. So, of course, yeah, uh, you uh, crazy Trek fanatics probably know this better than I do, but Captain Koloth actually comes back with William Campbell playing him in the episode of Deep Space Nine called Blood Oath. So that's kind of fun.
1: Yeah, and so... As I'll mention at the end, the perfect way to like follow up the trouble with tribbles is to watch Trials and Tribulations, the Deep uh-huh. Space Nine uh, homage in which the crew come back and take part in this. And of course, Dax really wants to see Koloth. <laughs> nice. So Cisco has to be like, "No, we're we're staying here." <laughs> We're staying on the Enterprise. <laughs> we are not going over there. Oh, but I just want to see him. I know if you can't. You're going to mess with the timeline. <laughs> you can know. <laughs> but it's funny because nice. everywhere she goes, because of course, she lived in this era, right? Her various hosts. Right. Anyway, she's like, uh, who is that guy? Oh, that's uh, Dr. McCoy. So she, I know him. Right. Oh, you went to old Miss. I remember. <laughs> One of my hosts was, you know, judging a beauty pageant, and uh, I knew he'd be a physician. Hands of a surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) So everywhere she goes, she's like (laughs) seeing a part of stuff she remembers. That's funny. But it's one of the the beauties of that episode is to take the humor, kind of double down on the humor. Or, you know, not, you know, double it in the sense that, like, it's twice as, as many gags. But you right. you all the you stay with the humorous theme, right? You play for the laughs, and then you you give this loving treatment of how we had to go back and and uh, and do that thing.
0: <laughs> and do that thing.
1: That's right. That Star Trek thing.
0: So uh, the guy who played Cyrano Jones, his name was Stanley Adams. Uh, Of course, he peered all over Wagon Train, Gunsmoke, all of those fun things. But he was also uh, one of the police guys on uh, episodes of Batman, as you can imagine. Uh, He he seems perfect for that kind of campy show, doesn't he?
1: And yet another Star Trek Batman connection.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Then we've got... uh, Oh, sorry. So then we got uh, Charlie Brill. Who his, uh, he's the actor. He's the guy who plays uh, Darwin, right? The, uh, the assistant to the undersecretary.
1: Who makes a you know, wonderful comeback in Trials and Tribulations, playing himself.
0: I was going to say. Yeah, and of he, course, he, he, play, he comes back in that one.
1: He's aged naturally, so he looks older and so forth, but he's a Klingon, so he's got a long lifespan. And, uh, it's, but it's great to see a character like that come back have a second second shot at at that role
0: nice so uh, he was a child actor who grew up to be a stand-up comedian. I just a little bit of his past is really kind of cool, so I'm gonna share that real quick. He was a stand-up comedian and his wife uh, with his wife and they were the uh, the the showbiz partners uh, McCall and Brill and they had the dubious distinction of following the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th and nineteen sixty four <laughs>
1: I have all those. I should watch it.
0: Yeah, There you go. Sullivan had the Beatles open the show, then uh, brought them back for a second set. In between, you had Brill and McCall and a couple of other acts. So uh, Brill calls it a, a night of terror. A million pre, pre-teenage kids screaming all during our act. And Mitzi and I were standing next to each other, and we couldn't even hear what each other was saying, which is why our timing was so messed up. And so uh, we thought that maybe the people at home wouldn't been able to hear us, so we started speaking louder. But that only made the kids scream. We want the Beatles louder. So it, it didn't. It wasn't a very good. Uh, uh, it wasn't a very good night on the show.
1: Yeah. So you know, when you watch these episodes of of Ed Sullivan, he does sometimes like have to come out and like calm the audience down.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the undersecretary. Uh, uh,
1: <laughs> Undersecretary for Agriculture and Development?
0: Yes, Niles Barris. Uh, he was played by William Shallert. Uh Now, first of all, William Shalert is just one of those guys who, like, from the 60s to the, like, you know, early 90s just was all over television. He was, you know, guest starring in things. You know, he'd pop up on a series or two, you know, a series for a season or two here. He was just one of those guys that, like, you see his face and you're like, oh, yeah, that guy. I know that guy. That guy. Uh, of course, he was most well known for in the early 60s as being the father to uh, on the Patty Duke show. So it's
1: that's another Patty a, Duke connection.
0: I didn't know we had another one, I just don't remember it.
1: Uh, Eleanor Donahue.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right, you're right. I do remember now. Noticeably, blah, blah, blah. blah, blah, blah. So, noticeably absent from not only this episode but the last episode is uh, Mr. Sulu, right? Well, George Takai had originally planned to be a big part of The Trouble Tribbles, with Sulu handling much of the dialogue that later Chekhov got. But Takai had received an offer to appear in the uh, John Wayne Vietnam movie, The Green Berets, which was set to film at exactly this time. So, of course, not knowing that, you know, Star Trek is going, go, going, going to go on to become what it was or even last another season, because, you know, they those these things are always up in the air, uh, Takai asked for the time off, and they gave it to him. And so, uh, you know, he was only supposed to miss, like, six weeks, and he ends up missing quite a few more than that. So as production starts on this episode, uh, Roddenberry is back in town. He's not very happy with what he's seeing. You know, again, we have this... Uh, you know, this shift into the comedy and he's, he's hating every minute of it. And it turns out that he wasn't the only one. It was uh, Robert Justman and Leonard Nimoy also did not enjoy the, the comedy episodes of star Trek and definitely wanted to do something a little more serious. However, Gene Kuhn, DC Fontana, Shatner Dewin, Nichols. They were all loved this and also loved seeing the boundaries pushed on star Trek. So. Well,
1: you know, I, As I say before, I think there's really an argument to be said for having different episodes accomplish different things.
0: Absolutely, I agree.
1: You don't want every episode to have the same tone, the same feel. You know, one of the reasons that Bing Crosby was so successful is that he was capable of doing every kind of music. You know, Irish folk music and Hawaiian music, Christmas music, religious music. Westerns, Westerns that aren't Westerns, jazz, whatever it was, mm-hmm. giving it the Bing Crosby yeah. treatment, and his audiences would accept it because they could hear Bing Crosby. It was it was it was a Bing Crosby song. And if you can do that with Star Trek, you take whatever. Uh, this is a funny story. This is a police story. This is a love story. This is a deep intellectual story. Uh, this is a, a high-tense, you know, commentary on race relations of the cold war nuclear armageddon or something you know deep and dark and ponderous you could do all that stuff in different episodes you could hit all those notes and ever and people could watch it and they would enjoy all of it because it all felt like star trek
0: mm-hmm. so during the uh, filming of the fight scene on day six Jimmy Dewin goes up to Jason Pitney and says, Hey, give me as much of this as you're gonna let me do. I want to do as many of my own stunts in this one as just because it's more realistic and then you get more close-ups of it and everything. So uh new was like, Yeah, we'll let you do everything. And except for a couple of times when Scotty has to fly through the air, they uh pretty much let him do it. <clears throat> so Dewan says, uh About 5% of it they used the stuntman on, where uh, some flying through the air was involved, like I just said. Uh, It took about two hours to film the whole fight, and once everything was lit, it was still a lot of fun to do. My stuntman, Jay Jones, said to me when I had uh, finished doing all this stuff, he says, If I ever become famous, would you please be my stuntman? (laughs) Oh, that was good. Uh, so as we head into post production, uh, Charlie Brill, again our uh, Darwin, says this: When Mitzi and I were on the Ed Sullivan show with, with the Beatles, John Lennon was in the uh, guests room with me, and he was doing a bunch of these doodles, drawing uh, little cartoons on napkins, and then he gave one to me and signed it, and I left him there. And then I was on the Tribbles, and everyone was taking Tribbles homes with them, but not me, so I missed out on John Lennon doodles and some original Tribbles boy if Renoir had done a painting of me I'd have left that behind too (laughs) all right well that's enough behind the scenes stuff we got a few more things to talk about but I'm just going to fill them in as we're hitting the recap so uh you know like we like to say here let's get to it captain's log starting
1: it's five year mission
0: So we actually start this episode off with a briefing room scene. How weird is that? That's usually something that happens in the middle to kind of give us some exposition, remind us what each episode's about, what the heck's going on. But no, not this episode, because it's a classic.
1: Is that for people who are tuning in after the first half hour of My Three Sons?
0: (laughs) Right, yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, We get some background information on the sector of space. Kirk does it like a quick quiz, you know, for Chekhov. Uh, all right, tell me, uh, you know, uh, how many people are in this uh, sector? All right, Spock, you tell me, uh, you know, uh, why this sector is so important. All right, Chekhov, now you tell me. That's basically the way he was doing it. We also find out about Sherman's planet. It is disputed between both the Klingon and the Federation. This is also when Chekhov mentions the Organian Peace Treaty, like you said uh, earlier which of course also uh, had to do with uh, Errand of Mercy. Spock claims that the Federation has a better claim. However, Chekhov goes on to tell us that the treaty states that one or the other must prove that they can run the planet more efficiently, which Kirk claims gives the Klingons an edge because of uh, how they don't care who gets in their way, they're gonna get it done. Suddenly as uh, Chekhov waxes philosophic on Peter the Great, we get a distress call priority one from space station K seven and priority one means near or total disaster. Dun, dun, dun. Opening credits. But when the ship arrives, we see that everything is fine at K seven. There are yeah, no they show ships in radio around.
1: silence. I mean, they are, right. they are ready for like uh, uh, a bunch of Romulans cloaked and <laughs> destroying border facilities
0: exactly but not at all in fact kirk breaks that radio silence and calls the station Uh, they are told very little it seems like it might be an accident although it's never said we don't know what's going on kirk and spock beam aboard to get an explanation and he wastes no time he's barely out of the transporter when he when we meet uh niels barris he is the undersecretary in charge of agricultural affairs in this quadrant that's a big title so you, this this happens again in this episode. They refer to quadrant
1: in a way that makes it sound like sector. Right? Like it's just mm-hmm. a just this the region of space, this locality, right? And later on in Star Trek, the quadrants refer to the four quarters of the galaxy. There's the alpha quadrant, the beta quadrant, the delta quadrant, the gamma quadrant, and that's it, because there's four quads in, in a in a
0: rent. In a rent.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so uh, Barris demands that Kirk put security guards around all the storage bins. What, what? Replies Kirk. We must protect the Quadro Or Quadro ch- ch- chicticali. chicticali. The Quadro The What, what? Asks Kirk again. Barris, who's a stuffed shirt, says, I wouldn't expect you or Mr. Spock to understand the Quadro is... But then Spock goes ahead and tells him it's a wheat rye hybrid of a high yield. Anyway, Mr. Barris is worried that the Klingon agents might try and take it. It's the only thing that grows on Sherman's planet. But Kirk's pissed that he had used a Priority One to to guard uh, some tons of wheat. Kirk notes that this is a misuse of the Priority One alert, and he's going to alert the Federation of Offense. Commander Lori now asks if they will post the guards anyway. Kirk seems to say, about to say no, but Spock steps in, saying it would only be logical, Captain. Kirk relents. Kirk then calls for uh, only two security guards to be put near the uh, near the grains of wheat, and surely for everyone else. Beres is offended by the low number of guards, but Kirk tells him, but Kirk tells him that he has never questioned a Federation official. Until now. So then this is where I started to wonder if this seems a little unKirk. I mean, we know he's always had a little bit of a problem with authority, as we've seen in a couple of other episodes, but uh, does this feel unkirk like to you, or does this uh, fit in with what we know of Kirk?
1: Is it what? Do, do we think this is Kirk?
0: Yes. Does this feel like Kirk to you?
1: Oh, it totally feels like Kirk. Kirk. Chafes under every kind of commissioner, ambassador, busybody who says, no, this is my mission. You do what I say. And Kirk's like, nope. You can put a Commodore on his ship and he's going to figure out a way to get uh, Spock to relieve him of command.
0: Right. That is fair.
1: So the one thing you get in this episode that you don't get in some of the other ones is is Kirk is really mouthy with him.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And, you know... So part of it is outside the box. It's the, this is a funny episode, so Kirk's going to be a funny guy. And part of it, I think, is that within the story, this guy has screwed up by using the the level one alert call. And Kirk feels like, yeah, I can get away with being mildly to you because you're already in trouble and no one's going to hold it against me.
0: Yes, because that's what, uh, exactly what happens next. Here is that Spock. Uh, Spock says he understands the precaution. The Klingons would want would not want us to successfully de- uh, develop Sherman's planet. But Kirk is upset anyway. He's uh, almost offended by the fact that they use the priority one out of uh, out of sorts. On their way, we run into her and Chekov. Kirk asks Chekov about the grain. He too knows what the grain is. Kirk asks, "Why am I the only one who doesn't?" Kirk assures him that it's only because this was once a Russian invention. Invention, yeah. <laughs> yes. Victor, too. Victor uh, <laughs> exactly. We, we find out a lot about what's going on uh, or what, what Russia has created in this episode. We got some, we got talked about Peter the Great earlier. Later, they're comparing scotch and vodka. It's a whole thing. As Chekhov and Uhura make their way to the bar, uh, a peddler walks in, offering uh, fire gems to the bartender. The bartender rebuffs it, saying, You already sold me these. Try something else. So the peddler pulls out a little furry thing. Not at your price, says the bartender. Funny story here, the bartender's played by a guy named Guy Raymond. And uh, he also played a bartender in many beer commercials in the 60s, in which he always commented <laughs> on these strange occurrences that happened in his bar. So that's funny. Maybe that's why he got cast. <laughs> exactly, right? <clears throat> so uh, Uhura picks up the fuzzy and it starts to coo. The bartender starts to negotiate again, but the peddler wants 10 credits, but the bartender insists on one. All right, I'll go up to two after seeing Uhura pick it up. Uh, all right, all right, I'll go to four. As they continue to negotiate, we see the Tribble start making his way over to the quadro... Uh, the, the quadru- blah, 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 blah. Finally, at seven credits, the peddler sells the lot to the bartender, and he gives this sample to Uhura after hearing the bartender's markup. Aboard the Enterprise, Kirk receives a priority one call from an admiral this who basically says This is one of the
1: says, moments uh, where we get, uh, where there is money in Star Trek.
0: Oh, yes, exactly. One of the few moments, exactly. How else is she going to pay for that? Well, I guess she gets it for free anyway. There's no...
1: Well, so the idea is, like, they're energy credits. Like, at some point, you're going to go to the Enterprise and go, now, you know, please download some amount of energy, and they're going to go, where's your ship? Oh, that one. Boop. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm all charged up.
0: woo <laughs> So the Admiral basically tells Kirk to do what the Undersecretary says. This mission on, is on you, he says. If it fails, it's your fault. But then... Before Kirk has any time to take this in and process it, a Klingon battle cruiser arrives at K7. Kirk calls for red alert. Lori then calls the ship and says that the Klingons don't want to attack. And he knows this because the Klingon captain is there. Dun-dun-dun commercial. Back at it. Kirk beams down and he's greeted by Captain Koloth. Again, played by William Campbell, who played Trelane
1: I feel like he plays it a little too Trelaney.
0: I I agree. He's he's not as gruff as Kalicos uh, was.
1: Yeah, so he needs to he needs to have a slightly rougher edge rather than being like, well, uh, he's he's he feels dapper and.
0: You know? Yeah, exactly.
1: Like he's gonna play the harpsichord any moment.
0: <laughs> so Koloth is asking Kirk uh, for surely for his men. We do not carry leisure on our ship, he says. And according to the Organian Peace Treaty, you can't deny me, he says. Lori doesn't want them there, but he has no authority to say otherwise. So Kirk makes the rule that for every Klingon that beams down, only 12 at a time, that there will be a security guard from the Enterprise posted there as well. So uh, here we get uh, some more, as we saw in... uh, episode that i keep mentioning and i can't forget again can't Aaron remember of the name of again yes Aaron of mercy thank you we get some more open hostility from kirk to the klingons right so you know we saw it in that we saw it in that one we see it in this one where he is just like i don't like you i don't want you here i know i can't stop you but this is these are the rules and you're not going to do anything wrong. so it's funny because i almost feel like the writers of star trek six went back and watched these original klingon episodes you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and just saw kirk's continued hatred for the klingons of course then we get the famous um you know we get what a a klingon kills kirk's son spoiler alert uh we get you know so all the things that the you know it's because of the klingons they have to blow up the original enterprise another spoiler alert so the klingons had this you know and kirk had this long history But you look back all the way back this far and Kirk is just like ready to beat them down at a moment's notice, you know? So it's funny because then you get to the beginning of Star Trek 6 where, you know, Kirk and Spock are debating about whether or not they should go to the Kittimer thing. And, you know, Spock says uh, they're going to die. And Kirk says, let them die. You know, it's like you can it's. 30 years of dealing with the Klingons that uh, that uh, make this happen. Ooh. So there's a story about a deleted scene here, which I'm going to talk about, even though I should probably save it for Star Trek VI, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Where uh, I was watching The Tonight Show when William Shatner was on uh, back in 1992, and he's promoting Star Trek VI. And they show that very clip on The Tonight Show of Spock and he's saying, let them die. And so after he says, let them die, they cut to Spock. And when they come back, Kirk's a little bit lighter and he says, has it ever occurred to you that of all the people, I might not be the best person for this mission? To which Spock would then replies, only Nixon could go to China. So they come back from showing the clip and everyone's applauding and you can see Shatner's a little bit unsettled. And he says, uh, they they cut something out that they weren't supposed to. When we were shooting that, I didn't want to say, I didn't want Kirk to say, let them die. I made them film it with me, waving it off, you know, so that it was like, I didn't really mean that. I just, you know, it was just a, was just a you know, heated moment. I wave it off. And the director was like, great, we'll shoot it that way. So then little do they know, he then goes to see the movie or see this clip on The Tonight Show, and so for the first time, he sees that they cleaned out the, or they clipped out the the let them die part, and he was not very happy about it. He has since many times talked about how treacherous it was for uh, Nicholas Meyer to do that to him. Anyway, back on board the ship now. Kirk goes down to the mess, and he finds uh, Scotty just thumbing through some technical journals, you know, for fun. (laughs) Because what else is Scotty going to do on a uh, uh, with some time off? And then they find the... I
1: think he's like reading the technical journals.
0: Of course he is. We find that the uh, Tribbles have had many babies. Spock is there holding one, and he's like petting it, and he's like, I- I- it seems that this cooing makes for a calming effect onto humans. Of course, it wouldn't affect me. He says, almost smiling, petting the thing, and they all turn to look at him like, uh-huh, yeah, right, yeah. And then just puts it down kind of quickly and moves on. So that's so kind of a funny little joke awareness there.
1: Self-awareness not necessarily the highest of Vulcan trades.
0: Definitely not. McCoy takes one to sickbay, and he promises he's not going to dissect it. The rest are kind of <laughs> given away to, <clears throat> to various crew members. Kirk then gets a call from Chekhov. Barris wants to talk. He's worried about the Klingons. He does say Klingons. Kirk insists uh, he's got enough security around the gang- grain and enough around the uh, Klingons. As for what you want, he looks at Scott or at Spock for a second. It has been noted and logged. Kirk out. <laughs> Spock sort of looks at him like wearily. Kirk heads to sickbay because he's got this new headache caused by the uh, <laughs> undersecretary. In sickbay, Kirk notices that there's a number of new tribbles. How many did you start with? He asks. Only one, says uh, McCoy. He says, it turns out that 50% of their metabolism is dedicated to mating. Kirk says, uh, well, how do they, uh, you know, what makes them? bone saves them? and it's like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm looking into
1: it. It's like it. they're born pregnant. That's <laughs> later. But yes,
0: he does say that. <laughs> So as Kirk's walking out, he's like, well, if this continues, you might as well open a maternity ward. Kirk then sends uh, more peeps down. You got this
1: this comment, right? And on the one hand, it's it's just a little joke, right? A little bit of levity in the funny episode. On the other hand, what he's doing is he's foreshadowing the real problem in a way that is dismissive, right? So Kirk is like not taking it seriously. He's not taking the the grain problems seriously, he's not taking the Klingons, I guess he's taking the Klingons seriously, not taking the Tribbles seriously. So it's kind of like, out of the three problems he's got, he's only focused on the one. And those, in a sense, they're all gonna combine into one big heap of mess.
0: Oh yes, they are. So uh, Kirk sends some more of, uh, of the crew down for shore leave, advising that no one walk alone and always stay in groups don't know about those klingons he advises uh scott to uh, keep an eye on everybody and make sure that they behave themselves but scott doesn't want to leave the ship but kirk basically orders it so scott and chekov then enter the bar the peddler arrives again trying to offer everyone a tribble, but they all refuse so then the peddler moves on to the klingons but here we find out that klingons hate tribbles and vice versa I was thinking about this. It must be that cooing sound that makes the humans, you know, calm down. That's probably what the Klingons hate about it. You know, is it's like I don't need to be calm. I need to be unedged. Somebody could fight me or something. You know.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like it's a, it's like taking opium or something. I'm, I'm, I'm crowded. Instead of my, my evil focus on combat, I'm like, oh yeah. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm getting Logie. Although,
1: although in uh, Trials and Tribulations. Worf tells the story of like you know the great klingon <laughs> uh triple conflict of <laughs> the past
0: oh my god in which
1: uh, yeah so he explains you know that they're like pests they destroyed colonies because they would basically as you can imagine they eat everything right yeah and uh you know at one point a bunch of warriors got together and wiped out the triples entirely
0: <laughs> that's great
1: So it's why we never see Tribbles again. Wiped out by the Klingons.
0: So the peddler then moves uh, to the bar and tries to sell him another batch of Tribbles. But uh, then we get this great scene of the bartender just pulling out Tribble after Tribble after Tribble after Tribble after Tribble after Tribble tribble and putting them on the bar. Scott and Chekhov go back and forth with this uh, scotch and vodka. And uh, which one is the real drink? Chekhov here quips that uh, scotch whiskey was invented from a little old lady in Leningrad. So, of course, uh, that was originally St. Petersburg, right? And then it was changed in honor of Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the communist revolution. And then back to St. Petersburg in 1991 after the breakup of the USSR. So it would technically be St. Petersburg again in Chekhov's time. That's
1: right. So what's wrong with uh, Chekhov? Is he really a communist?
0: I don't know what's going on with that guy. Guy Sure does guy. love the Russians. <laughs> I was trying to make a joke there, but it wasn't going to work. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> so then uh, one Klingon gets up and he starts taunting the Earthers. Chekhov tries to step up, but Scott sets him down. The Klingon goes on to uh, talk about Kirk. Chekhov rises again, but Scott tells him to sit down, and this time it's an order. The taunts continue, and until the Klingon starts to talk about Scott's wife, the Enterprise, when he says it should be hauled away as a garbage scowl. Scott then punches the Klingon, and a fight breaks out. During this fight, the peddler helps himself to drinks. The drinks in hand, starts to make his way through the bar while the fight happens all around him. Then Federation Security shows up and breaks it up as we go to commercial. Back at it, the captain uh, reprimands the crew. He asks who started it, but no one fesses up. Kirk then asks Scotty to uh, stay behind. You were supposed to stop this from happening, says Scott. finally admits that it was him who threw the first punch, uh, but he tried to st- stop Chekhov first. Well, uh, why did Chekhov want to throw the first punch? So Scotty lists the uh, many things that the Klingon said about Kirk. Uh, I get the picture, he says. But it wasn't that that made Scotty throw the first punch. No, we're bigger than that, says Scotty. Uh, we should all be able to take a few insults. Well, then what started the <laughs> fight, Kirk? Well, they called the Enterprise a garbage scowl, sir. Uh, I see. Scotty, you're restricted to quarter still. Oh, thanks, <laughs> Captain. It'll give me time to catch up on me technical journals. <laughs> But then more tribbles, So many. Spock says he doesn't understand the triples, that they have no practical use. Bones asks, does everything have to have a practical use? Yes. they furry, and they make a pleasant sound. Uh, they do have one redeeming characteristic, says Spock. They don't talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> more barbs are traded here. Back on the bridge, Kirk sits, uh, sits on a Tribble. Oh, no. And he realizes now that they're everywhere. David Gerold, uh goes on to say that the Tribble props were misplaced all over the set. And uh, they were found for several months after production in uh, many episodes. That's funny. Oh, there's another one. That's another. Right, let's get this thing out of here. Jeez, Where is this thing hiding? Kirk calls Bones to the bridge. He asks him about the Tribbles. If we don't get them off the ship, we're going to have quite a time on our hands. They seem to be born pregnant, says uh, Bones. Which also seems to be uh, quite the time saver, says Bones. (laughs) Spock says, uh, I still don't understand them. They are going through our supplies and returning nothing. But Uhura now tries to make a case for love. But then Kirk says, well, even love is uh, is that too much of a good thing is bad. Even love, he says. Turk demands the removal of the Tribbles. He calls, he buzzes down to Lori and uh, tells him to find Cyrano Jones. So back on K7, Spock explains that to Cyrano that by removing the Tribbles from their predator-filmed environment into an, an environment where their natural multiplicative proclivities would have no restraining factors. Ah, well, would you care to, I don't know what you said, says Cyrano. <laughs> it was just great the way he says that. I'm not even doing it justice. Cyrano then excuses himself as Barris walks in. Barris again claims that Kirk is taking the situation too lightly. No, I take this situation seriously, says Kirk. It is you that I take lightly. <laughs> Barris tries to claim that Cyrano is a Klingon agent, but both Spock and Kirk disregard it. You have to admit he's disrupting the station, says uh, says uh, Denever, or whatever his name is. Well, people have disrupted stations before without being a Klingon agent. And sometimes all they need is a title, says Kirk as they walk out. <laughs> so I don't know what you were talking about, about Kirk being openly uh, facetious to this man. It's amazing. Back on the ship, Kirk and Spock order food, but it is covered in troubles. They're even in Kirk's coffee. He demands <laughs> that they are put off the ship now. This is my chicken sandwich and my coffee, says Kirk. So uh, Scott runs in then, holding a pile of triples. And if you look really closely, you can see that James Doohan doesn't have a finger. His lost finger is there. You can actually see it in this scene. Scott then claims that uh, he found them in the air vents. Then Spock realizes that there are air vents like this on the space station near the Quaginero blah, 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 blah stuff. They then head back to the K-7. They beam down to K-7. Lori asks, is there a problem? And Kirk says, there is, if... Uh, what's happened, what I think happened. As they arrive in the container room, they can't get the door open. It's jammed. So Kirk tries one of the overhead compartments and Tribbles rain down on Kirk as we go to commercial. Back at it. Kirk emerges from the pile of Tribbles. Lori blames Kirk for this. This is your fault. You should have known this was going to happen. Then Bones runs in and tells uh, tells them that the way to stop them from breeding is to stop feeding them. Uh-huh. <laughs> Aha! <Yeah>. But thanks. <laughs> yeah, right? Noted. A little late we'll on get that, right on that. on that. But now Spock notices that the tribbles all around Kirk are now dead. Bones scans them too. He says that most are dead or near death. Kirk says, let's get the grain and the tribbles checked out. In the next scene, Kirk, uh, Kirk has brought Cyrano Jones in to answer for what's happened. But then Koloth runs in and demands an apology to the Klingon High Council from Kirk. Bear says that they can't do that because that would mean then Sherman's planet would have to be given to the Klingons. But Kirk's not looking to apologize. He's looking for answers. How did the Tribbles end up uh, in the Quadrophenia? Whatever it is. Who poisoned the grain? Then Koloth asks that the Tribbles to be removed from the room. But as they are, but as they walk by Barris' assistant, Darvin, the Tribbles freak out like he's a Klingon. Oh, Kirk takes some Tribbles in his hands and starts walking around first to the Klingons, then to Spock, then to Barris, and then back to Darvin, where they freak out just like they did around the Klingons. Bone scans him and realizes that, that he is a Klingon, and it was him who poisoned the grain. Darwin admits Ah! this to Kirk after being threatened by the Tribbles. (laughs) After being threatened with torture (laughs) by the Tribbles. They take him away. Then to Koloth. He tells them to get their ship out of Federation territory. You've got six hours. Back in the bar later, Kirk takes Cyrano in to show him uh, all the trouble with Tribbles. (laughs) See what I did there? Kirk tells Cyrano that uh, that they're... uh, that there is a penalty for moving creatures that causes damage to humans. Cyrano says, ah, one little Tribble isn't okay. Could be 20 years, says Spock. Cyrano attempts to bargain with Kirk to get off the hook. After all, it was the Tribbles that led you to the Klingon agent, he says. (laughs) Kirk makes a deal. Pick up all the Tribbles on the station and I'll let you go free. What? But that would take years. 17.9 Seven to be <laughs> exact. Says Spock. With no foot left to stand on, Cyrano agrees. Kirk heads back to the ship. All the tribbles have been picked up, much to Kirk's happiness. Bones says, Nope, you won't find any here at all. <laughs> well, how'd you do it, Bones? Ah, uh, uh, well, I can't take all the credit. We gotta give it a little bit to Scotty. Oh, well then, Scotty, uh, who did it? Where are the tribbles? Well, I can't take all the credits. We're going to have to go to uh, Spock's recommendation. Okay, Mr. Spock, where are the tribbles? <laughs> well, it was Scott who did the actual engineering. Okay, fine, <laughs> Scott. Where are the tribbles? <laughs> well, I used the transporter, sir. Ah, well, where'd you transport them? I gave them to the Klingons, sir they engineer in their engineering room, where they will be no trouble at all. <laughs> <laughs> As credits roll. see,
1: <sighs> so you may be interested to find out that th- that there is a product, a Belgian beer called Quadro Tricticali Oh, of and course it, there is. It is a beer that is brewed with tricticali, a hybrid grain that has the flavors of wheat and the spice of rye using a dark candy sugar and arden yeast. Oh my gosh, that so. sounds amazing. <laughs> well, now you're going to have to check it out.
0: <laughs> I am. I wonder if I can get that here. <laughs> I have to go to Specs or something to find it.
1: Yep. And the report back to us. <laughs>
0: Spock's estimate of how many tribbles there are in three days, dead or alive, starting with one tribble, producing a litter of 10 every 12 hours is exactly correct. Assuming that every tribble has a litter of 10, tribble reproduction is exponential. Starting with one tribble makes 10. In 12 hours, the total is 11. 12 hours later, each of the 11 tribbles produce 10, making a count of 110 babies. Include the original 11 tribbles, that count is now 121. The formula for the tribble now, just so you know, is x equals 11n to the 12th power. Where x is the total, n is the number of hours given three days at 72 hours. The final result becomes 1,771,561. 1, 7. So now you know, just in case you ever need to figure out how many triples. Third season producer Fred Freiberger also disliked this episode. David Gerald recalled that he pitched a sequel for this episode. Uh, Freiberger did not like it, he didn't like the original because Star, Star Trek is not a comedy, he would say. Gerald's pitch later evolved into the animated series episode More Tribbles, More Troubles. This was voted uh, the best episode of Star Trek by viewers of the Sci-Fi Channel's Star Trek 40th Anniversary Celebrations. It was also voted the best episode by Empire Magazine when they ranked the series... It was also voted the best episode by Empire Magazine when they ranked the series number 43 on their list of the 50 greatest TV shows of all time. The book Star Trek 101 lists this episode as one of the 10 essential episodes in Star Trek. Having been a big fan, this is an interesting little note here. Having been a big fan of the original Star Trek series during her youth, Diane Warren, the songwriter who wrote the Star Trek Enterprises uh, theme tune, My, Where My Heart Will Take Me, cited this installment as her favorite episode of the original series. Doug Jones, who plays Saru, who also avidly watched Star Trek: The Original Series also selected this as one of his favorite episodes. As a youngster, that was one of my favorite episodes. I like happy endings. I like low stakes low stakes stories myself. So it was kind of like perfect. So then uh, uh, it came down to um, sound editor Douglas Grindstaff to create the sound of the tribbles, right? Uh, he said, so I had to create a bunch of different sounds. There was one sound for an individual tribble. Then there was the sound for uh, several tribbles. Then a few more. Then a few more than that. And eventually the sound had to fill the whole ship. So I found this dove coup. I flipped the track over. Shaved part of it with a razor blade. Uh, then I just made a loop of that. Put it at variable speeds. And uh, changed the pit- pitch to different frequencies. So then I went out and found a screech owl for the sound of the Tribble rearing up when it saw the Klingons. I took that screech, played with it, and got many variations of that as well. So that's where the sound of the Tribbles came from. There's also a scene in uh, in the original, not the remastered obviously, but in the original series where uh, you see the Star Trek go by outside the window, they actually used one of the uh, store-bought Enterprise models for that uh, <laughs> shot, so you can see that go by. Save some money doing that as opposed to having to buy a whole or to build a whole other Enterprise. Composer Jerry Fielding scored his first of two episodes of Star Trek. He was chosen to do this uh, to do this because of his background in comedy, having written the music for Bewitched, Mikhail's Navy, and Hogan's Heroes of which he also wrote the theme music for. So the uh, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, 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 boop, boop. That's this guy. He would also go back to uh, score another offbeat Star Trek episode, uh, the surrealistic Specter of the Gun. But the funny thing is that after doing that episode, he hits the big time on the big screen with 1969's The Wild Bunch, for which he received an Oscar nomination. Two other Oscar nominations would then follow with Straw Dog and The Outlaw Josie Wales. So isn't that interesting that, uh, you know, we got a guy who uh, produces a couple of, uh, or produces some music for a couple of episodes, and then, boom, goes on to uh, become an Oscar nominee. Star Trek, again, was the second place winner behind uh, Gomer Pyle on Friday nights. Uh, But this week, uh, Hondo was keeping it a little bit closer. uh, Two percentage point, point two percentage points, splitting them. And there we go. The end of another classic episode of Star Trek. Can't wait to get to the few more that we've got coming up. And then a whole third season that I don't think I've ever seen ever, ever, ever. So it's going to be fun (laughs) to see all of that stuff. Can't wait. Uh, Anything else we should talk about, Ken? Anything else we didn't get to that we need to uh, discuss?
1: We know I'm. I guess I have to go back and watch an animated episode with, uh, Tribbles.
0: Yeah. You got it for the, uh, for the finished trilogy. That's
1: right. But I do say that, uh, so when Charlie and I watched, uh, the episode, we, we went on right to DS nine. We watched the trials and tribulations. She didn't know any of that cast. Cause we haven't gotten to deep space nine, but just right. the, the, It it felt like Star Trek. It, you know, it it was these other characters interacting with the same stuff. She enjoyed it. So. Love it. It's good stuff. It's great. You get a lot of, you know, homage type jokes. For example, at one point, uh, you know, Dax does the same calculation before Spock does it. And, uh, of course, Cisco (laughs) stops her right away. Like, no, no, no. (laughs) I don't need to know. See so get it's those important information to me. Yeah.
0: We're not bringing back any to DS9 cuz that would be a big
1: headache. Actually they did. At the oh, very did they? end. Yeah, at the very end. Of course. <laughs> and I'm sure it was Dax who did it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuz it was it was Worf and uh, Odo and Bashir and uh Chief O'Brien, Cisco and Dax. Who else would have brought a one back?
0: Yes, exactly.
1: I'm sure she grabbed one while uh, Cisco is going up to the bridge, going, "Here are the duty reports, sir,
0: uh,
1: Lieutenant uh, Cisco. You know, <laughs> I've just been, you know, temporarily assigned to the ship, but I just want to say it's been an honor serving with you, sir. <laughs> well, all right. While he's doing that, she's grabbing a triple, <laughs> bringing it right, back exactly. to the client.
0: <laughs> Putting it in one of those like original nineteen sixties yeoman like bags or purses exactly, or whatever they yeah. had. Yeah.
1: They had the beautiful twenty third century styling with the black mat and the silver finish. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. One more funny story. So this is uh, James Dewan has uh, two kids, or I mean, he probably had more, but uh, he had two uh, two of them who were twins. So uh, one day he brings the kids to – he used to bring them to set all the time, right? But during the Trouble with Tribbles, uh, James goes and puts them in the shuttlecraft. And he's like, hey, just hang out here, okay? Don't take any – don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Stay here. Behave. Chris, and by the way, his son's name is Montgomery. They're already seven by this point, right? So obviously Montgomery is uh, not an ode to uh, Star Trek, but it just happened that way. So anyway, uh, Chris uh, t- tells this story. Staying put is a difficult assignment for seven-year-old twin boys. And one day, we couldn't resist uh, leaving the confines of the shuttle and going where no child has gone before. <laughs> so we were curi- so uh, they crept up to these, like, tall cabinets, right, that had doors that were just out of reach. We were curious to know what was inside, he says. So my brother got on my shoulders and slid the cabinet open. And instantly, 200 tribbles come tumbling out, nearly burying us. Not only did it scare us, but we knew that we were going to get in trouble with Dad if anyone found us. So we rush back to the shuttle. Five minutes later, my dad appears, praising us for being so well-behaved. 30 years later, I get back, tell my dad, Hey, by the way, this happened on the set one time of Star Trek. And he got mad at me! He's <laughs> like, it happened yesterday! <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's such a great story. And it's such a good dad story too, you know what I mean? It'd just be like 30 years later, he's still pissed that you did something. That's like <laughs> That's a good story. Well, on that note, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up for another week. Uh oh, um mm-hmm. Oh crap, I closed it down already. Do you know what next week is? Yeah, Bread and Circuses. So it's uh the Romans. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that'll be fun. It's I good. don't know, but I'm excited for another episode I haven't seen. <laughs> what were you going to say?
1: It's a good episode.
0: Did you say it's... Oh, it's good. Okay. Yeah, Romans. Good to know. Romans, I know you're excited for that, and then I'm definitely excited for Journey to Babel, as I said, so... A couple of good weeks coming up then, I guess. It's going to be fun. Well, as always, my name's Matt coming to you from Austin and from Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. Oh, that's so nice. And we will see everybody next week. Bye.